Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's show, as we all know, the global economy is becoming ever more volatile. Is Ireland equipped to deal with the stormy seas ahead, or are we just an economic outlier that's hired wired to extreme bouts of boom and bust? We'll ask Stephen Kinsler, who's Professor of Economics at the University of Limerick and Chief Economics Writer at The Currency, what he thinks is next for Ireland's economy. Climate investment is a big hit on Wall Street at the moment. We'll hear what's hot and what's not when it comes to getting in on climate action from the organisers of a major conference set for Dublin next week. And finally, are social media platforms selling for huge figures because they yield profits or because they wield power? We'll talk to Laura Slattery from the Irish Times. You can get in contact with the show by emailing us on takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, have you ever wondered why the social media platforms that are selling are worth so much? Do they actually make a profit and how do they monetize you? To find out more, I'm joined now by Laura Slattery from the Irish Times. Laura, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. Now, Laura, I... I I've seen in recent weeks, we've all been discussing uh, Elon Musk um, ad nauseum. And a friend of mine said to me yesterday, look, I don't have a car. I'm not on Twitter and I've no intention going to the moon. Why on earth are we all so obsessed with Elon Musk? So today I just wanted to have a broader discussion with you to try and find out more about the social media companies in general and how they have been securing such valuations in recent years. So you might kick off by just giving a sense of that, like talk to me about the, the biggies and what their valuations have been. Yes, well, I mean, the valuations uh, range from about 569 billion for Facebook or Meta, as it's now known, to something that's really quite obscure, I suppose, like Pinterest, which is only worth about 15 billion, but still a pretty uh, <laughs> noticeable. <laughs> probably shouldn't dismiss 15 billion as nothing. So towards the lower end of that range is Twitter, which is worth about 37 billion. That's according to its uh, stock market valuation at the moment. Of course, these things vary uh, quite a lot and they've been up and down, um, especially since the pandemic when we all started to live more of our lives, even more of our lives, I should say, online. And, and even though advertisers did pause uh, major campaigns um, at the outset of the crisis, and some of them are doing again so now because of the Russian in- invasion of Ukraine, and these businesses do depend on advertising for the bulk of their revenue. But despite all of that, um, the fact that we devote so many of hours of our day to our smartphones and these apps are sitting right there has led to these huge valuations and um, quite um, <laughs> active interest uh, by shareholders and investors in the stock market. Now, as you say, the primary driver, I suppose, is the advertising revenue, but there are other ways that these social media platforms secure their, their revenue. Can you just talk to us about the other issues like uh, data and selling on users' data and you know the transactional arrangements that they might have for online sales and things? Right. Well, I suppose the main way that um, social media companies have been able to sort of profit from, from data um, has been by charging higher rates for advertising because uh, more targeted advertising um, allows for that and is one of the key reasons why social media has been so attractive to advertisers. They want their brands there 
but they also more specifically they want their brands to be targeting a certain user and a company like Meta through Facebook and Instagram has this huge uh, vast pool of what we call first party uh, data so although the company has in the past obviously been affected by um, scandals in, in relation to its handling of third party data and, and other, other uh, uses of data. Uh, it nevertheless has emerged as a very solid um, business in terms of the first party data that it own, owns. And that gives it an advantage, even though we are seeing at the, this uh, last year or two and will do in the, the years to come, a crackdown on privacy led by companies like Apple who are making it harder for um, social media companies to, to track users on smartphones. Facebook earns about 97% of its revenues from advertising. Mm. And a lot of what it's been talking about recently uh, in terms of moving into the metaverse and rebranding itself as meta is partly designed to sort of move away from advertising as its sole um, source of revenue. And Twitter too, you know, it is very dependent on advertising. Okay, it has a, a subscription product in some regions called Twitter Blue, but it's not, it's not really a huge deal for Twitter. And last year out of Twitter's total um, of 5 billion in revenue, 4.5 billion of that came from advertising. So we can see how even though these companies do um, from time to time try and adopt um, new strategies and get new revenue streams on board, they are still very much in that advertising space. Okay, so Laura, when you look at the profits um, from platforms like this, um, you'd have to wonder why, you know, someone like Elon Musk would pay a valuation fee of 47 billion for a company that's turning a profit of 5 billion. So if this is not about profit for him, is it about turning it into profit or is it about something else? I think it's about something else. I mean, he, he said himself, he doesn't really care about the economics of the deal. Um, that might have been to deflect uh, attention a little bit of, uh, of uh, heat, I suppose, that uh, many people on Wall Street feel that he's overpaying um, for Twitter. And, and even, you know, what he's offering, $54.20 uh, per share, you know, Twitter hasn't risen up to that level, which you would normally um, expect it to do after, you know, the bid went in and was accepted by the board. So it's... it's uh, it's a bit of a, a curious one. I mean, we know it's the platform he sort of either loves to hate or hates to love. Uh, he's very active on it. Um, he posts frequently. He loves an emoji. He loves um, to uh, insult other people sometimes on it, it often in quite uh, crass language. He's deleted many tweets in his time. Um, but he also kind of speaks in a language that I think a lot of people, a lot of his fans, uh, appreciate so he's the richest uh, man on the planet uh, but you know he comes across as the kind of guy that they can you know maybe have a drink with um, whether he would do that or not I'm not sure but um, certainly to fans of his success at, at Tesla and, and SpaceX he's kind of a, a kind of a renegade kind of a billionaire um, and the one that they kind of relate to a little bit. 
Yeah, he's certainly um, a unique character and that, I suppose, lends itself to a particular type of following. But just back to the other media platforms for a second, Laura, what type of profits um, are the other ones securing? Are Is Twitter unique in its, I suppose, conservative profit drive? Uh, are the other ones faring much better? I mean, I think the thing about Twitter is that many of its investors in recent years have actually been just really deeply envious of the profits that have been made by the others. Um, you know, Twitter, it posted its first uh, profit in, in the end of 2017 and the first annual profit was in 2018. So it took a while for it to get there. And it's been, you know, mixed fortunes ever since then. Um, you know, there, it has, I suppose, I suppose some, it's not unique in that sense. Uh, Snapchat, which is very popular with younger people, um, it maybe hasn't seen um, the kind of growth that we've seen recently from TikTok, which is the one that they're all worried about. Um, but Snap didn't uh, turn a quarterly profit until uh, the final quarter of last year. Mm. And it's uh, since having a bit more challenging times, even since then. And, you know, that's a company that's worth 46 billion on, on, on its uh, market uh, cap. Um, so it's sort of closer in size to Twitter than the likes of Facebook, which really has been a profit machine. You know, um, it, Facebook, uh, or I should say Meta, uh, it, its uh, revenues last year were 118 billion and the profit on that was, was 39 billion. So like these are, mm. these are huge numbers that, that Meta has been uh, uh, turning in which is which is why it's sort of in the sort of elite group you know and it's kind of almost closer to google and uh, amazon and those kind of uh, businesses than it is to twitter and snap so when you're looking at the type of user of a platform let's take linkedin for example um is it does that determine the value and the worth so if you have a more business orientated following on linkedin say does that make a company particularly um attractive for investors yeah, I mean, LinkedIn LinkedIn is always the one I always forget about it because I don't use it. Um, but LinkedIn is it was obviously had a huge appeal um, to, to business users. And that's its main use case is people looking for a job and people um, looking to make connections with other people in the term in the course of their professional careers. And that's what made it an attractive purchase uh, for Microsoft when it acquired mm -hmm. LinkedIn then a few years back. Um, if you looked, if you look at the sort of the user uh, experience and LinkedIn in Ireland, for example, there's been some uh, survey findings on this that although many people do have a LinkedIn account, the, the numbers who consulted daily are, are wouldn't be quite as regular as those who even you know check check Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, and the 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 one that I think is is really noticeable in, in just in the last two years. Um, for bringing people back to the app on a daily basis is TikTok. It's almost become embedded into young people's lives. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a feeling of, of joy, I think maybe some people get from TikTok or, or perhaps it's just another iteration of social media addiction, but it's almost, I suppose, the total opposite extreme to, to something like LinkedIn where, you know, the experience that the sort of emotions we will have using LinkedIn would be, almost diametrically opposed to the ones people have using TikTok. Um, so there are, there is still space, I think, for so, social media platforms that serve um, a particular niche or have particular roles to play. 
um, but it's it's hard to see um, how many of them are going to survive in the long term, or or perhaps we will just always have this kind of carousel mm. social media companies. Yeah, and when a, a social media company become successful as Instagram did um, they can often be taken over by an even greater one as Facebook uh, took them over and acquired those so it's actually growing a much bigger platform. Laura the issue of regulation is is quite a difficult issue when you're trying to talk about social media because there's so many variants and I suppose it's in such an infancy but when it comes to the the matter of advertising um, are there plans afoot to try and uh, you know centralize some rules for advertising if you just took the area of politics for example the rules in advertising and politics are different all around the world um and you know i know there's a lot of thought about if elon musk takes over twitter formally will donald trump uh come back into the twitter sphere and will that regenerate the the social media platform is there much discussion around you know a a one-stop shop for regulating on advertising I think there has been some discussion of that. I think it would be very difficult to implement in practice. Um, to some extent, the European Union has has led the way, and there's a kind of a feeling of kind of regulatory overspill in a sense, even mm. in the US, that what the EU um, pursues um, might end up being a more common practice elsewhere. There's been a lot of flip flopping, I think, on the issue of, of political advertising. Um, but certainly um, there's been a more concerted effort in recent years to crack down on hate speech and uh, disinformation and misinformation on these platforms. And I think there is a sense of alarm, perhaps, that someone like Elon Musk can just come along and, and buy Twitter, you know, with, with the 44 billion or whatever it is of, of his loose change. And perhaps that might actually inspire um, another look at how globe, uh, global regulation could work, or at least maybe, you know, global regulation is a co- contradiction in terms, but you could have at least regulators speaking to other regulators mm. and being on a similar kind of page. But it, it's a very, I mean, it is, it is itself a political issue because, you know, Elon Musk says he's a free speech absolutist and we, we could have an, an endless debate about what that means or what he means by it. But there's, uh, the, the fact is that his uh, acquisition of Twitter, if it goes ahead, will be hugely welcomed um, by the US Republican right, who feel rightly or wrongly um, that, that the algorithm as it stands um, is sort of almost purposefully um, downgrading their tweets and amplifying the tweets of Democrats and people on the left. Now, there's no evidence really for that, um, but um, I suppose they can point to the fact that Donald Trump was eventually uh, banned from Twitter for inc- inciting violence. He wasn't the only one, but yeah, <laughs> he's not there now. And if he was back, rather than um, uh, sitting out on his own uh, platform called uh, Truth Social, um, yes. I think it's quite a lonely place. Um, you know, if he if he does come back to Twitter, it will change. It will change the vibe, I think, of the platform for many people. Laura, finally, just to uh, round this off from our own perspective as a consumer, um, do you think there's enough awareness about uh, how media platforms sort of uh, dictate our behaviour? I, I recall being in an advertising agency for a demonstration on some uh, on, on how advertising is bought now, maybe ten years ago, and it reminded me uh, very much of sort of Wall Street trading, where you can 
geo-target particular individuals in particular areas or by teachers in Roscommon and target those specifically. Do you think there's enough awareness at an individual level about the type of targeting that's going on? Um, yeah, I think I think people probably are aware, but they're not necessarily, um, uh, you know, they don't always object to it. Um, mm. And it just, it depends on many things. It, you know, you might object to it one day and feel completely comfortable with it the next. And it almost depends on, uh, you know, uh, you know, you, you can get that creepy feeling off a particular advertisement if you, if you think it's kind of following you around the internet. But on another day, you might not be alive to that, or you might think it's just a coincidence, or even if you think you, you have been tracked, you might be actually uh, welcome welcome that if it's uh, an ad for something that you do actually want to purchase or know about in some way. Um, so different generations obviously have different opinions too. Um, I mean, we saw quite a lot of people did opt, um, you know, not to let apps track them when mm -hmm. Apple did bring in its privacy update, which I think was in April of last year. So people are responding to that extra control. And I think a lot of people are definitely in favor of having that extra control over apps and the extent to which they are, are targeting us. Um, but it's, it, it's still possible, of course, to be hoodwinked by things. Uh, there's new apps uh, popping up all the time and a lot of them do um, ask for our location, uh, um, which is a, a huge area, I think probably still um, untapped to a certain extent um, by um, advertisers. You know, they want to be able to advertise people, you know, pinpoint them exactly where mm -hmm. they are and sell them um, products based on that. And I don't know if we've really seen that take off in the way that perhaps we were expecting. Now, again, the privacy crackdown has um, blunted that somewhat, but also I think maybe the technology has a little bit to, uh, uh, it has some way to go. Um, but there's new apps uh, popping up all the time. There's a new one called Be Real, um, which it doesn't at the moment take any advertising at all, but I expect that the commercial interests will start flocking to it pretty soon because the whole idea of Be Real is you only have two minutes from when you get sent a daily prompt to take a picture of where you are and, and yourself, what you look like. It's kind of got two pictures in one. And so it sort of it encourages people to... Um, to sort of be themselves there's no filters there's no editing tools um but that's also of course you know very valuable information it's uh it's it's currency to somebody you imagine and at that moment at the moment that company doesn't have any revenue streams and you kind of wonder well what's their plan um we'd love, love to know a little bit more about it and um, yeah. we all download it and incorporate <laughs> it into our lives well, we'll certainly have to, to watch that space. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to give us that broader view of the issue of social media valuation and its landscape. That's Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. This is Mandy Johnson with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Is greed good when it comes to climate finance? Wall Street advisors hit Dublin to give us what's hot and what's not on climate action investment. That's coming up after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, the Dublin Climate Summit 2022 will take place in May and it's going to bring together a mix of Wall Street investors, Silicon Valley pioneers, politicians and energy suppliers. It's actually very timely given the very vulnerable position that Ireland finds itself in in terms of energy security 
and with the very real challenges that we have as a nation to try and reduce our carbon emissions. To discuss the issues now, I'm joined from New York by co-founder of the event, David Calloway. David is editor-in-chief of Calloway Climate Insights. He's also former president of the World Editors Forum and former editor-in-chief of USA Today. David, thank you so much for joining us today here on News Talk. Happy to be here with you. David, tell us about the Dublin Climate Summit. How did you get involved and why did you choose Ireland as a location? Well, I think Ireland plays a unique role uh, within Europe in terms of climate and sustainability. It's uh, it's one of the leaders in kind of recognizing the, the need for transition to renewable power from fossil fuels. Um, it's It ranks high in the sustainable rankings uh, of European countries, um, you know, up there in some cases with some of the of the leaders such as Norway and Sweden and, and, and Denmark. Um, electric vehicles are taking hold. And, and and it's also Dublin is a is an international financial center, and and kind of the Europe is taking the lead as far as I'm concerned uh, from here in America. Uh, it's taking the lead and kind of been pacing the transition, and and that has to be fueled with with capital and financial capital, and so government work supplemented by in, uh, investment from the largest uh, banks and financial companies is is crucial to helping us uh, uh, solve our energy issues and, and move to the transition. And Dublin is a is a is a well known place, and it's where it's where a lot of that capital lives. A lot of our um, speakers at the Dublin Climate Summit are from there. Um, I've, we've got people coming in from Wall Street. Um, they'll be visiting their Dublin offices. Uh, the, the head of ESG for Blackstone is going to be joining us, Gene Rogers. Um, I've got people coming in from Silicon Valley, uh, one of the major venture capitalists, uh, Gabriel Croft from Prelude Ventures. Um, all these people are going to be flying in, not just to speak at the Dublin Climate Summit, but to, to do business in Dublin. So uh, it's a key place at a key time. Uh, my partner, Stephen Ray, is uh, is joining me in this. And we came up with this idea last year. We did a virtual Dublin Climate Summit uh, during the COVID, uh, the COVID mm-hmm. time. Uh, and and it was so successful. We thought, well, we have to do this one in person. And advanced registrations are strong and we're very excited about it. Yeah, you're right. There certainly is a big push at European level. Um, even before the war in Ukraine started to try and advance the Green Deal. And that's sort of accelerated now because of the war and this push to try and wean Europe very quickly away from fossil fuels. Um, What do you think that the uh, Europeans can do in terms of the new initiatives by Russia to start cutting off the gas supply to places like Poland and Belarus? Well, fortunately, um, you know, th- those nations have done some preparations. Uh, Poland is going to be getting, it's lined up to get its gas from uh, from, from Greece, I believe, Belarus from uh, from Norway. Um, and and they, they take Russian gas, but they don't take a ton of it. And so this was kind of a trial by balloon by Putin, I think. Um, the bigger countries, Germany and Italy in particular, take a lot of Russian gas, and they're, this makes them very nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in addition to kind of trying to line up uh, supplies, thank goodness, thank goodness, it's getting warmer, and and we have until you know six months or so until it starts to get cold again. Um, 
But, you know, Putin is, uh, he's been pretty clever about this. And he started just today, we started to see some of the energy companies in Italy, Germany and Austria break away and say that they will continue to buy Russian gas and, and they will uh, convert their payments to rubles because they're ner- too nervous about running out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what this means for the European transition in general and the Green New Deal is it must be accelerated. You would would have thought when we had COP26 last year in Glasgow that there couldn't be a more urgent issue than climate change. Well, there is. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's the reduction of Russian fuel uh, from Europe. And so we must ins- accelerate uh, wind energy, uh, solar energy, tidal, thermal. Um, we've seen the UK, for instance, pass a new energy package and not a great one, by, in my opinion, but it's uh, but it's something. Uh, EU is working on on speeding things up. Uh, big debate about whether nuclear power should be in that, which has been raging for several years, has now largely been decided. Uh, nuclear power will be part of it um, because we need to do everything we can to kind of shift that balance as fast as possible. Because if Russia can do this to Poland, Belarus can do it to, to Italy and Germany and everyone else. Indeed. Back to the conference now for a second, David. Uh, you mentioned there you'll have some people attending from Wall Street. We know uh, historically they're always a, a bit ahead of most of us. What are the hottest areas of uh, ESG investing that Wall Street are recommending at the moment? Well, we've seen you know, over the last couple of years, it's been very fashionable for all these companies to, to claim they're going to be net zero by 2050. All right, that's, you know, 30 years away. And and you can easily be net zero by buying so-called carbon offsets, essentially buying your way to net zero and not reducing your carbon footprint. So the most fashionable thing in on Wall Street right now is decarbonization. And you're going to be hearing this a lot at the conference. The speakers are saying, unless companies have actual plans to reduce their emissions, they're just not in the game. So David, just to to clarify then, it's not about um, offsetting. uh, It's not about buying credit. It's about stopping producing. Absolutely. Okay. And so that is what Wall Street's investing in. Um, they're investing in electric vehicles. They're investing in battery storage. Uh, you know, the components that can that can essentially help us not have to produce fossil fuels. The most interesting one, though, is is carbon removal, which is essentially sucking carbon from the atmosphere and from the sea in some cases, mm-hmm. and then storing it somewhere underground. Uh, there are something like 300 companies worldwide who are working on these technologies right now. None of them are cost effective uh, and none of them you know, really can remove the, the scale of carbon that needs to be removed. But Wall Street and Silicon Valley and the city uh, are investing heavily in these companies. I think that's going to be, you know, if technology can help us solve the global warming issue, it's going to be from that. So, so you're, you're the talking idea that it's not enough to, re- to to stop doing carbon. You must remove what we've already done. So you're talking about carbon capture storage here, are you? Yes. OK, so so that technology has been talked about as an antidote to the energy crisis for many, many years, but it's very expensive and it hasn't actually moved forward at the pace that people had expected. Do you think that that's going to change? Uh, you, you know, I, I'm a bit of a skeptic about it, um, looking at the state of where we are right now. I, I can see, though, that even though it's been talked about for years, there's suddenly, you know, scores of companies that are 
doing it and building the products and take and raising the money from investors on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, so suddenly there's something has happened in the technology in the recent one or two years that has got folks sitting up on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley and and putting millions into these. Like I, like you said, it's they haven't been scaled enough to, to work at this point. Uh, they're still way too expensive um, in terms of how the technology works. But if we know one thing about technology is that it gets faster and it gets less expensive over time. Yeah. And and so there is, if you ask some of the leaders in that business, they'll tell you that they hope that it will be cost effective and scale by the end of this decade. Maybe. Um but uh, what I do know is a lot of people have put in a lot of money behind it. Necessity is the mother of all invention, they say, but it's nothing yes. without the finance behind it. So that might be the game changer here. Just turning to the issue of finance, what is the role of banking and financing in terms of helping the world uh, to transition off those fossil fuels that we've been talking about? Well, it's a very controversial issue. As, as you know, the banks, uh, the world's biggest banks are the ones who finance the oil companies and the gas companies. Um, they've been spectacular investments over decades. And, and even though these banks say they want to uh, um, uh, move to ESG and they want to help reduce that, they're finding it very difficult to do it uh, in this environment. So we've kind of reached this this point, this crucial point in history where in order to stop the producing all this oil and gas, um, we must cut the financing off. Mm-hmm. And so the pressure that I think you've seen, things like, you know, protests, Extinction Rebellion and, and you know, the Greta Thunberg uh, protests and stuff have largely been against oil companies right now and, and get them to stop producing. Now they've moved to kind of let's cut off them at cut them off at the knees in their financing. And so the pressure is shifting to the banks and the banks are starting to feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all having their AGMs, their annual general meetings this this spring, and they're all being really pressured hard by shareholders. I don't think um, we're going to see anything in the near term except uh, ratcheting up of pressure. And if we can get to the point where a few of these big banks, a few of the largest pension funds, some of the big sovereign funds like we've seen in Norway and stuff can start divesting their fossil fuel shares, then we'll start to make some progress. We're not there yet. But that's why it's important to have to gather these bankers and these folks together Mm -hmm. uh, at things like the Dublin Climate Summit to to discuss. And that's the objective for this conference, is it, to start those dialogues um, beyond the conference? It really is. And to, and to also look at new technologies, not just in carbon storage and removal, but um, it's basically it's, uh, artificial intelligence technologies, ways that we can calculate what the risks of global warming, various places. For instance, in, in India this weekend, it's going to be 50 degrees. Um, you know, that's that can be deadly in many cases. Um, they're having a heat, the heat wave in April that they usually have in June and July. We're starting to see more of these flooding in Europe, the, the, the freeze over in Texas last year. And and financial companies, insurance companies lose money on that. Um, they need a better way of assessing their risks. And so there's a whole bunch of new companies coming in that are being financed that um, are using AI to better focus risk. There's one that's going to be speaking in, uh, in Dublin called Servest. They're based in London. And they could essentially, using their software, look at your house in Dublin 
and tell you what's going to happen climate-wise to it over the next 30 years. Um, you know, what the dangers are from flooding, from fire, from, from windstorms, you know, that type of thing. And that type of uh, technology is incredibly useful to a global insurance company or a global bank or a hotel company with assets all over the world. So it's, it's not just technology about decarbonization. It's, it's, it's advances in data and, and uh, um, artificial intelligence that will help um, companies, cities, uh, neighborhoods uh, assess risk from climate change and global warming. Well, it certainly sounds very timely, very interesting, um, and hopefully uh, it will spark a lot of debate. David, before I let you go, I just wanted to talk to you about your own career a little bit, if I may. You've had a very interesting CV, um, and I have an interest in the media. I just wanted to ask you, What's it like to be editor of a newspaper like USA Today? Is it, I would imagine, it's a massively pressurized role. Yeah, I, I was editor for almost five years. It was it was high pressure, but it was thrilling um, because we're in the digital transition. Um, yeah, we would start early at seven thirty, and I'd sign off on the front page at at half eleven at night. Um, and so it was a busy, long day. But you're covering the world, and you know USA Today heavy focus on the U.S., but also uh, on serving our readers overseas. So we had folks in Europe and in Asia, and uh, it was. It was absolutely thrilling. Um, I wouldn't give it up for anything. I've talked to, now that I've left uh, and gone on to other things, I've talked to editors at, at various uh, large metropolitan publications in the U.S., and, I've, and they've complained about how hard it is, and I've told them, you know what? Buckle up and get up and do it because, you know, you know, you won't be able to do this forever, and you're going to really miss it. And, I know I do. And as someone who is... Um you know, help the newspaper transition from the traditional print into to digital. I just wanted to ask you, what's your take on Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter? Do you think he'll make a positive contribution or a big difference to the platform? You know, I, I, I really am kind of a skeptic of that. It's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's one everyone's talking about today. People are saying that he might not even go through with the deal now because of concerns about EU privacy laws, China and stuff like that. Um, but um, you know, Twitter is Twitter is what we call the town hall in the U.S. and and globally in many ways, and and it's it's not something that one man fixes. Right? Mm-hmm. And you know, he can add an edit button on it, and he can proclaim various rules and stuff. But you know, for every reaction, there's a there's a, a counter reaction. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to do it. I think he's. Um, you know, he's a remarkable man. He he runs the biggest electric vehicle company. He runs his space group. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's doing all sorts of things. But this may be, uh, he may have bitten off more than he can chew with this one. Indeed. David, remind us when the conference is on and where it's happening. It's at O'Reilly Hall in Dublin on May tw- Thursday, May 12th, 10 a.m. That's great. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was all very interesting. That's David Calloway, who is Editor-in-Chief of Calloway Climate Insights and co-organiser of the Dublin Climate Summit 2022. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Anytime. Coming up next, as the US Fed raises interest rates, I'll be joined by Professor Stephen Kinsella to discuss what lies ahead for Ireland's finances and find out if our government can weather the impending storm. I'm joined now in studio by Professor Stephen Kinsella. He's Professor of Economics at University of Limerick and also the Chief Economic Writer of The Currency. Stephen, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. 
Now, just to kick us off today, we saw this week that the, the US Fed has increased its interest rates by 0.5%, obviously to deal with the enormous inflation rates that it has there, um, records that we haven't seen for 40 years. But what does this mean for the US economy and what are the implications for the global economy? What happened this week was very well flagged. So the um, chairman of the US Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, said uh, and communicated very clearly over a number of months that this is what they were going to try to do to rein in inflation. So the uh, the price of everything in the US is now going out of control. The unemployment rate is incredibly low. And essentially, with an overheating economy, there's only one thing the central bank can do, which is to make it more expensive to borrow. That's exactly what um, Jay Powell has done. He's made it more expensive for banks to borrow and therefore to lend to others. The flagged increase uh, hasn't really changed much because it was so well communicated. Um, But over the next um, six months, 12 months, 18 months, it's widely understood and flagged that we're going to see interest rate increases. What does that mean for people listening at home? It means that... The European Central Bank, which is the thing that sets the interest rates that our banks borrow uh, at and with, will probably follow suit. This is because inflation is is also um, very high in the Eurozone and particularly in places like Ireland. Now, you might argue that now is not the time to raise interest rates because it's not the inf- inflation isn't necessarily coming from an overheating economy. It's coming from our importation of fuel. And the reason that's more expensive is not because of inflation, or anything like that, or some other weird thing, or supply and demand, it's because, very simply, there's a war on. So there is a big debate in Europe, as opposed to the United States, about what the right interest rate um, uh, setting is. I fully expect that interest rates will go up this year. Um, And what that means is if you're on a tracker mortgage, it'll become more expensive. If you're on a variable rate mortgage, it'll become more expensive. If you've got a fixed rate mortgage, life is all good until you have to... Um, um, go off the mortgage, you know, personal loans, working capital loans will all become more expensive. And that m- that means that the Irish economy will slow down somewhat. And that's probably not a bad thing mm. um, because the, the the data that we have shows that the Irish economy is in fact overheating um, in, in many respects, even though we have two sectors, accommodation and uh, wholesale and retail, that are still quite badly damaged from COVID. So uh, ov- the overall picture is an economy that is struggling to cope with the damage that was caused by COVID, struggling to cope with an, with with uh, the uh, damage caused by Ukraine and particularly the energy prices. And now um, we may see a situation where businesses get um, hit again with increased costs of borrowing. So you can see a situation brewing, um, if not in this year, then early next year, where the Minister of Finance is asked, what are you doing to protect businesses that are, you know, going under because they haven't been able to recover from COVID. And at the same time, you'll have uh, other parts of the economy that are overheating because they're they're uh, exposed to these, you know, markets like the US that are just spending loads. Just to pick up on that point about the domestic pressures a little bit, we saw the exchequer figures uh, this week from the government showing that um, incredible. They've spent 31 billion uh, just in the first four months. I mean, I know there's significant pressures to try deal with the uh, energy crisis and to try and help households to, to, to deal with those pressures and also the Ukrainian refugee crisis. But how do you think the government are managing their own spending beyond what's happening macroeconomically? Do you think they're just yielding to pressure? Do you think that they're being appropriate in their in their spending? It's it's funny because there are very few moments 
in Irish economic history you can compare now to. The Irish state didn't exist the last time there was a global pandemic, really. Um, so we didn't really have to deal with this in the 1920s. Um, there, there, there have been wars, of course, but e- each time there have been major wars, the Irish government or the UK government has actually um, restricted prices. And it's, it's taken over effectively um, the pricing systems in the economy. And there's never been a situation where where ships not being able to dock in China because of their new COVID restrictions bleed forward into increased costs of children's gifts at Christmas time because mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So these 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 challenges are in some sense unique, um, and therefore the profile of public spending is probably it's probably not fair to say you're doing a good job, you're doing a bad job. What is certainly true is that there are vast amounts of government um, uh, pools of funding that are not being spent. A uh, perfect example of that is the Brexit Adjustment Fund. So that was a very large amount of money that was borrowed, I think it was 958 million, that was borrowed from the European funds to support our Irish businesses during Brexit. Not a lot of that was actually called down. And why is that? Why aren't... Just, they, the businesses didn't the bus- go for it. Businesses they, they, aren't there. The money was there. Yeah. The businesses just didn't, 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 accept, didn't access it um, or it wasn't handed out fast enough or something. And that money is now being used to help Ukrainian refugees and the mm-hmm. Ukrainian... Um, and people that are being displaced. So when you think about it, that there's so much money actually sitting there that's not spent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think you can accuse the, the the government of underspending, and that would be the biggest uh, problem during the austerity era. It was it was certainly the case that the government underspent relative to what it needed to do, and that's what's given us the housing crisis that we have now. Mm-hmm. Like if we just kept building houses. Through that through that period, we wouldn't have a housing crisis now, or it would be a far, far a downside less. And what happens? Why do they contract in that way? Are they just fearful of uh, public acrimony about building houses and being involved with developers and builders, or what? What, what causes that? Why don't they plow on? The dominant idea of any moment is it, it's always interesting to to try to ask yourself what is the dominant idea in a given moment. In, in 10 or 15 years ago, the dominant idea was that you needed to cut your spending in order to keep the bond markets happy. And, you know, when you, that's the, like, that's the, the, if you like, the dictionary definition of austerity. Cut spending, increase taxes, make the bond markets happy. They'll, they'll lend to you again because now you're credible. That, that went away essentially in, in, in July of 2012 when Mario Draghi said he's going to do whatever it takes to save the euro and started spending bucket loads of money, buying up all the bonds, making it um, free essentially for, for, for governments like ours to borrow. Uh, the With the interest rate changes that we talked about at the start, that's actually coming to an end. And what I mean by that is we're getting to ourselves to a, into a situation where the cost of sovereign bond, uh, so, our sovereign borrowing via our sovereign bond deals is going up. Very, very slightly. Very, it's very, very small amounts. But it's starting to tick up again mm-hmm. because the European Central Bank is pulling back from its asset purchases. And that means that Ireland and the Irish state is highly indebted. If interest rates are going up, so it costs more to borrow, and all of a sudden now the backstop to our borrowing is gone or re- significantly reduced, then all of a sudden the amount that we're 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 spending to, if you like, repay our loans to the rest of the world will rise. Mm-hmm. And in a given year, if the government takes in say a hundred billion in taxes. If it only pays out four or five billion in interest costs, that's grand. It doesn't really matter what the stock of the debt is. If you have to roll over the debt again and it gets more expensive, then that becomes five billion, six billion, seven billion. Suddenly, it's twelve billion. Then 
that's services you're not spending money on. You're not giving more money to higher education, which happened this week. Because your service, you're spending all your money. And that's the true cost of, that's the true constraint that governments in the 21st century are under. What do you want to do relative to what do you have to do? Mm -hmm. And when you, when it's too much on one side, you always end up in a, in a problem situation because people get really angry. They look around the world, they see other people doing far better than them and I say, this is wrong. And then they start turfing parties out of power and, and, and you know, you end up with the extreme right, extreme left all over the world. And Ireland has, has um, you know, uh, depending on, on, of course, how you choose to characterise the current government, you, I, I think they're, they're fairly solidly centrist, to be fair. But, um, you know, we have not, we have avoided that up until this moment. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock uh, with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Professor Stephen Kinsler about the global and national economic outlook. Now, um, Stephen, just taking all of those macroeconomic concerns and the domestic concerns into consideration, how well placed are we to deal with the storms ahead? And we're very well placed. Um, the first and most important thing is the economy is the sum of the behaviours that everyone um, does in, on a daily basis. So we have extremely... Um, healthy, extremely long-living, extremely well-educated workforce that is able to do things. Um, we we tend to deride ourselves and put ourselves down and say, oh, you know, we're, we're just a tax haven for multinationals and this kind of stuff. The reality is um, all of that kind of stuff is over. Um, we're, I've seen you, know, you writing in the past and, and asking the question, are we an economy maybe who are uh, prone to boom and bust? Why do you think that might be? Um, is it because of our location? Is it successive political policies? Or has it got something to do with a small open economy on, on the margins of Europe? It's our structure. So we've chosen to be a very open place. And that means we are completely dependent on tax revenues from around the world. If that's the case, then we, we have to find some way, if you like, to store that, to stop the, it's called pro-cyclicality. It means that when when things are going well, you've loads of money and you're leaning stamp into duty that, or whatever. Yeah. And then when things are going badly, you've no cash, and then you need to int- you need to introduce austerity. So how how do you stop our system from becoming pro-cyclical? Well, the answer is you introduce things like property taxes, carbon taxes, things that are stable, and you keep into income taxes nice and low uh, in order to do that. The Irish public in their wisdom, have deeply, strongly, steadfastly and repeatedly resisted any kind of comprehensive wealth taxation, um, any kind of comprehensive um, um, uh, business level taxation. Irish businesses pay some of the lowest PRSI in Europe. Um, I, 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 we, our corporation taxes is obviously quite low, even though we, we take a large amount of money from it. Um, our income taxes, not a lot of people know this, but only about a million people of the 2.3 million workers we have pay income tax. And they deliver quite an amount of the taxation. Yeah, so the top um, the top 20% of all income earners pay about 50% of all the income taxes. That's fine, and you, it's called progressivity. It means people on lower incomes don't pay as much income tax. But if you want to go somewhere like Denmark or Norway, which which is the kind of economy that we we we, we would like aspire to be in terms of universal services, what you find is people... Uh, at lower incomes, maybe in the third, the fourth, the fifth um, um, quintile. So, so the people, let's say, in the middle classes and lower middle classes, they will pay a lot more tax than you pay here. And it's not something that we hear in the public discourse at all because it's a really unpleasant thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Nobody in the political system will tell you, oh, well, we actually need to increase the, the taxes on the squeezed middle. No, it's right? a very in order unpal- to give them more services. Yeah, it's a very unpalatable political. Nobody wants to hear that. And if you're sitting there, if you're sitting there listening to this, and you're just roaring at the at the radio, going, "I pay too much tax," move to Denmark. 
you'll get better services, but you'll pay a lot for it, you know? And that's fine, and people, people will probably be, be okay with that at a certain level. But I do think that... Um, uh, one of the reasons for our boom and bust structure is that we tend to have an we tend to live within an air of unreality, uh, um, particularly when it comes to our our political discourse. So you might hear things like when you go canvassing with politicians, like I've been around uh, uh, canvassing with politicians, and you know when a politician opens the door to the the average Irish person, what they're asked is, "What are you going to do for me?" Yeah. So it's like, I don't oh, think that's know? unique though to Irish people. Oh, it's I true. think the it's world true. over. Uh, that's well, what people. Well, uh, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I I don't know. I I I think our our system of local government, our our our, our PRSTV system, it mandates that everyone is hyper hyper um, uh, sensitive to the uh, needs of the local, and that's a good thing. Mm. Um, but it also it also results in maximum clientelism, which means you actually need to give them an answer. If somebody goes, "What are you going to do for me?" You need to give them an answer. Well, I think also you know? the Irish electorate are incredibly well informed oh, yes. and engaged in debate in a way yeah. that maybe other countries aren't. And because Absolutely we're right. so small and and uh, prone to talking, yeah. um, maybe that's part of it. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the exchequer figures this week and the multinationals and corporation tax because. In that difficult macroeconomic landscape, if there is a downturn in the global economy, multinationals are invariably going to be affected. How dependent are we on them? And do you think we've put all our eggs in one basket again? Uh, we, we have put all, all our eggs in one basket in the sense that we don't give the same priority to the indigenous businesses that we do to multinationals. It's just as simple as that. Um, the the amount of money that we get from corporation taxes, I think we'll, that we have... We have um, the, the forecasters in the Department of Finance are, have very much adopted an under-promise and over-perform approach when it comes to forecasting this stuff. They think we're going to lose $2 billion a year. I strongly disagree with them. I think mm. the corporation tax take, in, tax take is going to increase over the medium term. Um, because Do you of think those the, changes yeah. on the corporation tax are going to happen? Do you think it'll get? Oh, to they're, they're definitely yeah. happening. The yeah. question is, the question is, uh, is that going to result in reduced income tax or reduced corporation tax for us? And I think the answer is no. No. Um, now, does that mean all the eggs are in, still in one basket? Absolutely, it gives tremendous power to the top ten income taxpayers in the country or corporation taxpayers in the country. Um, they're tremendously politically powerful. It's very difficult to imagine a situation where some rule comes in that says, oh, you know, um, uh, it's something that's injurious to I don't know Apple or something. Yeah, or Amazon is is going to be very difficult to um, uh, really see passing, but when you think about the fiscal state, the state that we're in right now, the state has just had a massive crisis. It's just had, um, and it's weathered that really well, but it's done that by really spending loads and loads of money, mm-hmm. and it's increased people's disposable incomes um, pretty well. And then if you look at you know the Ukraine crisis, the state's actually doing pretty well too. You know, relative to the in the UK, you know, we're we're do, we're we're in for, we're doing what our humanitarian mission says we should do. If you think about us in the next three or four years, Ukraine crisis will end one way or the other. Um, People will go home to a greater or lesser extent. The global economy is going to go into a recession very likely next year. Um, So just today, the Bank of England came out and and said there's better than 50% chance that we're going to see a, a big recession next year. Um, that will have obviously affect us because we, we're so connected to them. If if the US goes into a recession next year as a result of the big int- interest rate changes mm-hmm. um, that um, we talked about at the very start, uh, then that's going to affect Ireland too. So the, the state's coffers will shrink. Now you asked the question about whether multinationals' profits will be affected or not. And the answer is uh, uh, probably not because if you look at where they spend their money uh, or where they make their money, you know, Ireland's 
home to nine of the top ten pharmaceutical companies. People still need drugs. Yeah. You know? Just finally and very briefly, if you will, Stephen, I saw your writing this week in The Currency asking if Ireland was a good or a bad place to live. What side did you come down on? I, I came I came down on the side of, that it's a very good place to live. Well, on that very positive note, we'll leave it there. Um, that's Professor Stephen Kinsella of University Limerick and The Currency. Stephen, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you enjoyed the mix of topics and found them interesting. As always, if there's issues that you'd like us to look at, please email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.